Hey TSL fam, producer Jeff here, and this week is actually a fun conversation about my movie, which came out this week. And this conversation was actually recorded before the strikes, so you might hear talk about an August release date and pre-orders, and obviously all of that is now irrelevant. Rather, the movie is out right now, and you can order it anywhere you rent movies. So I'll include information to that in the description below, and uh, that's enough of me talking. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey everyone, I'm Meg Lafove. And I'm Lorian McKenna. And today we're very excited to talk to someone that you all know, our own producer, Jeff Graham. Jeff's first feature, Always Lola, which he wrote and directed, is premiering worldwide on streaming. It's available for pre-order right now. Jeff learned a ton on micro-budget filmmaking during his time in pre-production and on set, and he'd love to share as much as he can before the film drops. So Jeff, welcome to your own show. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was telling Megan Laurie, and I, I really appreciate the chance to share some of this. And for you writer-directors, there'll be a ton. But even just for you writers, I feel like what I would love to discuss, and we'll get into it, is even you, if, if this is something you're interested in, how to approach the page with the mentality of knowing your budget uh, before you jump in. So hopefully this will be valuable for all of our listeners today. And Jeff is a good sport. and He's agreed to uh, join our Adventures in Screenwriting or how was your week? So, um, Lorian, how was your week? So, Jeff, don't be too nervous. I'll be the first one to go okay. to show you how it's done. You can show okay? me how it's done. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, my week, uh, so this week I had it all planned out, right? I got chunks of time, all organized for all the things I want to do. And then uh, my daughter got a cold, a very, very intense man cold. Uh, it was a very upsetting thing for her to have this cold. She gets very upset at night about this cold. And also the entire street on one side of my house is being ripped up so that the new water lines can be put in. So that starts at about 6.30. So that's very upsetting to the dog and our whole life. Like the whole house shakes from it. So that's kind of what my week has felt like, that the whole house is being shaken by some external, very loud force ripping up the world around me. So uh, I've just been sort of going with it. I've ended up watching a lot of TV. I found a show called The Jewish matchmaker, which I really love, love deeply. I've watched that show. Oh, yeah. yeah, I really love Indian matchmakers. So this one was like an obvious transition for me when I discovered it. Um, so that's been my week. I haven't gotten a lot of writing. Okay, full real honesty here. I've got none writing done this week, like <laughs> none. I've written some emails. I wrote some really awesome texts. I made a joke on the Screenwriting Life Facebook page, and that's about it. So, uh, Jeff, how was your week? I will say it was a great joke. I think Lorian uh, <laughs> described her chip eating as that of a famished dinosaur, um, which I thought, like, that is enough writing for one week. It's a great joke. I laughed out loud when Thank I read it. Thank you so that, much right? for, <laughs> for validating my silly, silly joke. Yeah, no, it was great. It's the kind of stuff we talk about in your writing. It's evocative and efficient. I could picture Lorian's little <laughs> arms eating the chips on her way to the desk. So I thought it was great. Um, my week has been good. Um, I... Connected to the movie, a fun thing happened, which is I got my first payment for the minimum guarantee for the movie from the production Woo-hoo! company. We oh my the god, that's huge! Too, yeah. So. yeah, it's fun. It's you know, it's it's not a crazy amount of money, but for a first feature, it's it's symbolic, right? Like I think Laura and I are going to put it in a frame and be like, "Here's the first money you official money you earned as a filmmaker." So okay, so here's my first bit of advice: having yeah. received that check and been so excited about it, buy yourself a. T- tiny thing like a teeny tiny thing like a five dollar ornament or something to commemorate it or else you'll be a threat um what's the word what's uh, you'll be tempted sorry (laughs) see not writing at all i got all clogged up (laughs) uh you'll be tempted to spend too much on something 
fancy. Yes. Don't do that. Little tiny, teeny tiny little thing. Yes. Um, I think maybe like Laura and I have a restaurant we love. We might just go out to dinner as kind of a celebration. Get a photo. Um, but yeah, that's, that's yeah. it's a fun, it's a fun symbolic thing. And you know, it's that feeling of like, okay, a little momentum sometimes when it, in a career that can feel very, very hard. Um, I like the ornament idea though, because oh, yes, like I have a photo of me the day I got my writer's code card that is in, burned in my brain, but I have no idea where that is. Mm. Like, I don't, like if you had said to me, I don't know where it is. You're right. Uh, and the meal will come and go and you've done many meals. But if you get an ornament or something that sits on your desk, just a little goofy thing, every time you look at it, it will be saying to you, remember, you did it. Yeah, remember, you're right. You did it. Like yeah. get a little something weird to put on your desk or just something that is constantly in your visual cue to remind yourself. That's just my, I don't know. That's No, what I, I love it. It's a reminder. <laughs> when you're feeling like... I don't know if my work matters. You can be like, well, one company thought it did. Like, it's a nice Exactly. Reminder. It has happened. It has and happened. I bought this, yeah. And I bought this Snoopy figurine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Why yeah. not? Snoopy's um, proud of you. Love Snoopy. Um, and I've been writing, too. It's funny. I uh, have been just page one rewriting a feature. And Meg and I actually met on it. And Meg had wonderful notes for me. And Meg gave me a wonderful initiative and some homework that I haven't done yet, Meg. I'm sorry. And I oh, promise Jeff. I will. I know. I know. Um, Jeff, I told you. It was up. The lava was I up. Know. It was time to strike. It was hot. Strike when the iron when the lava is hot. hot. I know. I, and that's why you were like, I have something else to write. I know. I, I have, though. I've been writing a pilot and like kind of furiously rewriting a pilot. And I have sort of enjoyed the space to write something that's like 34 pages rather than, you know, 111. It's it's more challenging in some ways because you have to be so efficient in a pilot and you have to close some doors and open more for the season and find the engine. But there's something nice about like banging out a draft um, a little more quickly. So I, I know I need to jump back into this feature. I've been reworking and um, I will. I Yeah, I... I mean, we did say that whatever this lava thing, and I'm not going to say is wrong, is wrong isn't the right word, but that is a block or a blind spot or a, mm -hmm. something to go investigate. It probably is sitting in the pilot, too. Yeah, it is. Because it's... it's probably some core blind spot you have or something that you shy away from unconsciously, because we all have them, that it's probably sitting over there, too. Um, and then I'm just going to I'm just going to say, because this is my week, which I'll just flow into, because yeah. sometimes and I do this too, we get so into, oh my God, I have to write a whole script, like a hundred fucking five pages. And I just got all these notes and it's 105 pages and I have to figure out all these notes and it's 105 pages, but it kind of isn't because the, it was, it's a writing exercise of start putting it through its paces. Mm -hmm. That's not 105 pages. That could be two pages. That's true. That could be, that could be one page. And then if something comes up, if a bubble comes up, write that scene, that could be three pages, right? Like, I don't know that it's always, um, how I don't know that it's always this you have to think of it as a completion or a script I mean I know our culture does that right our culture is like you have to do this giant thing but writing isn't like that all the time writing is often just stopping and um, doing a quick exercise um, I'm working on a passion project right now and and I'm working on it with my husband and there is a we, we set out a goal to fix this character motivation and then suddenly realized by doing version after version after version, wait a minute, this every version that doesn't work is coming. And by version, I don't mean I'm writing, we're writing the, the whole thing. I mean, we're literally like beating it out, beating it out. Okay, no, this, this still doesn't work. Well, because it's actually his motivation as the antagonist and what he wants that she has to create her plan 
you know, what is he doing? What's he do? And suddenly the whole thing shifted over to, oh, we're even asking the wrong question. We could ask this question first. Okay, start beating mm. out versions. What does he want? What is, he could want, want this, he could want this. Why does that not feel right? Knowing what doesn't feel right is super, super important because it helps me clarify what it is. So this is a pilot uh, and it's like clarifying what the show is because his want is gonna really help to find the tone of the show, where we're going, how dark is this gonna get or whatever, or how broad or whatever. That all starts, be, and we're just doing, and it can get really, um, when you're doing it, like, okay, let's put that through its paces. What would that mean? What, what would the ripples of that be? Well, then what would change? Well, then do I even need that character and that whole set of things? You don't. That whole thing would drop off. Look, it would drop off. I'm not writing out these scenes. I'm We're literally just like running it through its paces, which I guess Pixar taught me to do, mm-hmm. which is like, okay, let's w- let's do that one. Let's take that road. Everybody, verbally, on a piece of paper, what happens? Blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and you start to see, Uh, It just, it'll all work on the top, but emotionally, I just don't care. Like, it's a good idea for a kind of external plot thing, but I don't emotionally care. There's something off thematically about this. Mm. It's not a good metaphor for the thematic of the show. It's not a good, you know, it's not going to root up his character. He wouldn't do that. You know what I mean? Like, you just start to feel it. And I think, you know, what I want to describe about my week is it can be hard because it's day after day after day of, oh, my God, no. Oh, my God, that's it. No. Oh, my God. Fuck, that didn't work. But it takes a lot of iteration of try this, try this, try this. Does that work? Does that work? Okay, that's a piece. That might work. Let's spin off that. Okay, no, wait, that didn't work. And, um... I, we I, we've literally had moments where we got giddy and started giggling because I was like, oh, my God, that's it. That's it. Oh, my God. That is so good. Oh, my God. I just got goosebumps. I just got goosebumps. That is so good. That is so good. And by the next morning, we both were like, yeah, we can't do that no. because look, let's run it through its paces right here. I, you can't do that. Like it just is not the same show. It's just not the same show. It's super great. It's not the same show. That's not the show we want to do. Fuck. We were so excited. <laughs> But if I would have just gotten excited and thought I have to write the whole pilot, well, I don't have to write the whole pilot. I literally have to go, what does that affect? What, where does that ripple? Just think it through, write it out if you have to in bullet points. And again, my brain might be uh, developed to do this because in Pixar, you have to do it in a room with multiple people going very fast under a tremendous amount of pressure, right? So your brain gets like a fucking knife, right? Like boom, 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 boom. Um, and then even then you can do a whole screening and realize, oh, we've missed that. We totally didn't see that that would drop off in the third act and fuck, it doesn't work. Um, so I guess I'm just saying you have to try it and you have to try it. My advice is you come up with an idea, it gives you goosebumps, you're all giddy, try it as fast as you can. Mm. As fast as you can, get it on a piece of paper. Emotionally, uh, where does, where are the poles of the character you know, how would that character move in the structure? What would would you start to lose? Does it feel right? Is it giving you, is it giving you plot? Is it actually starting to generate plot and ideas? And you're like, oh, I could do this and I could do this. And oh my gosh, that. And then that could come. Okay, then it's probably a good idea. If you're like, well, that could happen. And I don't know, maybe. And there's nothing. You're like, okay, maybe not. Right. So I just sometimes uh, think thinking of it as a writing exercise is better than I have to go write a whole script, right? So just wanted to link that to my week because that's what I'm doing. And I've, you know, it's super disappointing to think one day I have a goosebump idea and the next day you're like, oh, shit. 
Can't That's what do I wanted that. to ask about, Meg, because sometimes I find it hard to weather that disappointment, especially when you're on the 11th draft. Like you, I find myself either like resisting the temptation to get excited about an idea because I can, I'm fearing it's going to collapse or, but you talk hey, about, listen, yeah. most do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> most ideas are not. <laughs> yeah. I, um, uh, when I've worked at Pixar and you've done an entire screening and it collapses, that is months and months and months of work. It is thousands of hours of multiple people. That is like hard. Mm-hmm. That's hard. But in the room, things are collapsing constantly and right. being reborn. And I think what you start to see is the rebirth cycle and that every idea you put up becomes fodder and mulch and for the next idea. And you will not get to the ultimate idea until you get enough mulch down. I'm sorry. You just have to put it through its paces. And to me, it's better after a puke draft, after you just have any sense of what you're doing, to really start putting ideas through their paces and your brain starts to trust the iteration. Mm-hmm. It starts to trust, oh, go again, like, like that gut instinct. And I guess the last thing I'd say about that disappointment is, I guess I, this is so weird and stupid, but I really believe the story is waiting for me mm-hmm. out there. It's a thing. It already kind of exists somewhere, either in me or it is there. I have to find it. It's like my child lost in the dark. Mm-hmm. So if my child was lost in the dark and I have a flashlight, I'm not going to let the disappointment stop me. I'm just not. It's not about me, right? Those disappointments does is not a reflection of me and that I couldn't come up with a good idea and that I'm not really a writer or this idea sucks. I'm not saying your brain doesn't do that, but deep down in your soul, in your literal gut, in your in your body, you know you are the parent of this. Mm. You have to go again. And it is going to take a lot to find that kid in the dark. It is going to take a lot of failure because it's just part of the process, you know? And that idea we got that made us have goosebumps, I don't know that it's not going to show up in some form. Maybe it's going to be an episode. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I do believe... Sometimes it's coming in sporadic bursts, not in order. Mm. You know what I mean? Like you got an idea, but it's not the core thing you're looking for, but it's telling you something about that character that does feel true. It's just not a rudder. Mm. So let's just put it over here and maybe that's going to become an episode or maybe that's going to become a little sequence of episodes or maybe once I get the rudder, it's going to become much bigger. Or it does occasionally happen where you think it's not the rudder and then a week later you come all the way back and you're like, that was it. I mean, there is a great talk that Pete Doctor gives where he literally thought he started with sadness as the partner to Joy, abandoned it because he couldn't figure out what it was, and literally years later comes all the way back around to that's what it is. He just wasn't ready. His brain wasn't ready. He didn't have the insight into it yet, but he had the instinct. So sometimes you just don't know. And the only way you figure this stuff out is to do it. And I hear you, Jeff, that you've done multiple drafts already. But sometimes we're doing multiple drafts fixing. And I'm not saying you did this because I don't know. Fixing top stuff. A couple of them for sure. Maybe six and seven. (laughs) You're not doing like deep, you know, who's the main character? Who? What is this emotionally about for me? What is the tone? I'm not saying you don't ask those questions in all those drafts, but sometimes you don't know the answers enough to have them all click together into an engine until you've explored it in the draft. So I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you right now in terms of, but I am not going to write a million pilots to figure this out. I'm going to, I I mean, I have my puke draft. 
I have it. We've done it. We've agreed what the show is. And now we're just literally putting things through our paces. I don't talk to me next week when I might have a whole different <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, you are required to take my workshop. Now. I know. That's exactly what Meg told me, Lorian. I told him that. Yes. I know. That's because it is Lorian. It is a character thing right now. And yeah, I've got to get in there. And I'm, I will. I promise. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. here's the thing about multiple drafts. Sometimes your brain is keeping you very busy to keep you away from what you really need to go look I at. I think that's right. And it's writing it's writing draft after draft after draft. And let's say, I'm not talking about you now. I'm talking about just writers in general, almost a performative way mm-hmm. versus a deep way, right? I'm not saying deep stuff isn't coming out when we're doing the performative version. It is, but it's kind of metaphoric or sporadic or you got to, you know, you have a blind spot. We all have them. I think we've come right up next. You, your nose yeah. is right against that blind spot, Jeff. It's right against the blind yeah. spot. I think uh, what it is, too, to is you kind of have to disappear in order to let your character come forward, mm. which is really hard for a lot of us who like control uh, because it sort of feels like you're giving over everything, like your body to a certain extent. I And we don't have to include this in the show, but I, I it. find it fascinating watching the writers on my workshop like on the zoom as we get deeper and deeper their body language gets more still even as they're writing it gets more still more focused inward like they are letting go of the performative presentational thing of just being a human being especially on zoom Mm -hmm. and that's about trust trusting the group but trusting yourself in a way that it allows you to just sort of go into your center and meet that character. And it's interesting, Meg, what you talked about in terms of you believe the story is out there for you. And I've been so struggling because I get so uh, connected to my characters and then I don't know how to get into the story of it. And it's because I believe that my characters are waiting for me, but not the story. And I have to figure out how to make that shift so that I can go bigger because there is I love my characters. I love how they show up, but they're I'm not able to see the story they're bringing with them. And I need to be able to, I don't know how I'm going to do that, but like you said that and I was like, oh God, there's a flaw in my I, system. That's not a flaw. <laughs> it's just where you are. And it depends on, you can be different places, different days. But yeah. I think that also comes because I was a producer. So uh, somebody asked on our Facebook page, do I have to do a synopsis for producers? Do I have to do a log line kind of thing? And the answer is, yeah, sometimes because mm-hmm. they have to see a story like that because they have to go sell it to somebody. Yeah. So they have to be able to sell that story like this. But our performative self can get stuck in and certain brains get stuck in. That's all in the top plot. And certain people get stuck in. It's all in the emotional thematic, but it's both. Yeah. And when your brain has to know both and be able to pitch it to Jodie Foster as she's walking to her car. Right. Like that's yeah. what happens, guys. Like your brain just can't start doing that. So to me, it's the whole thing is out there. Like she's going to have a, your character will have a long, long life. Why are we meeting her now? What's going to happen to her right now that we, this is the place we're choosing for her to come in and see this part of her life because what's going to happen to her and how she's going to change or who she's going to meet probably because it's relationship. This is why we have to come in right now. So to me, that's where the story is, right? Like yeah. it's it's at the audience too, right? Because as a producer, you have to understand audience. And when I'm pitching it to her, it has to be, or to whoever, it has to be within the context of what our company does and what audience we're going for and what who, who do we have our deal with and blah, 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 right? Um, so it's just... It is something that you can develop, absolutely. And yeah, I, I don't I don't think yeah. it's bad that I start with character 
but I have to then look behind them. And I think mm. that's the piece that I'm not paying attention to because I live my life so barreling forward in the moment without often remembering who I am in the bigger context. And uh, and I so it's just a symptom of how my point of view of the world. Uh, so like, I'll forget things I've done. Meg, you'll remind me, but wait, didn't you accomplish this amazing thing? And I'll be like, what? <laughs> me? Really? Right. So like I, ah, so your, your blind spot is literally blind. My blind spot is my story and mm. how to control my own narrative in a way. So I think I have to figure out how to make, I'm starting to, as I'm listening to you talk, Meg, which is like a serious fucking masterclass. So thank <laughs> you. I think <laughs> we just cut this part of the, the episode and be like, here we go. Here's just a I mini, had a mini episode. I had a friend once, a genius. I had a friend once who was in her writing, coming up a blind spot, blind spot, blind spot. And she was like, I know this has something to do with my life. I notice I don't, I, I don't know. I can't see it. And so I was like, this is years and years ago. I was like, okay, I want you to write a fairy tale. I want you to write a fairy tale about your life. You, where are you? She's like, well, she's a nine-year-old princess. I'm like, great, where is she? Is she in a tower? Is she in the woods? Like, Just write a fairy tale. Because sometimes the brain needs metaphor to see it. The brain can't see it directly. It's been working for how many years to keep it away from your conscious brain? Mm. Uh, that can just be a writing exercise to help you get into the water. It's just a fairy tale, right? You know, who's the... Sounds terrifying. As soon as you said that, I got a little weepy. So I absolutely... Savannah's nodding her head. Jeff is smiling. So I was like, oh, this is this is something I have to do. But I am afraid gonna... of the yeah. dragon under the castle. Already. Well, already there's a the dragon, dragon under the... But yeah. honey, it's, it's a story. Because I'm when yeah. you said... And this is why this came into my brain. You yeah. said, I can't see the story. Well, fairy yeah. tales are just stories. I'm yes. not saying they don't have great characters and stuff. But really, you're. it's like, you know, at Pixar when they're like, what is the little book of this what's that called Lauren? The golden book, book. We what's the, the little, little golden, golden book. book of this yeah. you had to be able to pitch a little golden book version of your movie yeah. which was just the hardest thing it's the hardest thing but you had to be able to do it a fairy tale is the same kind of thing right like what's the story and that'll start to bring up blind spots um so just a thought that came to me no, this Lauren, is so great because i have a title of my show and i know the character's name but i've been like what the fuck is this about so now i'll write the fairy tale of her i'll do myself later how about <laughs> both ah it's just a writing <laughs> exercise. Just take two hours and <laughs> no, write, write hers first. Today. But no, thank I, you. the the real deep stuff will be in your own. And then it'll That's feed That's why I'm going to write hers first, Meg. <laughs> All right. Come on. I got practice. I bet they connect. Oh, my God. They're the same. They're it's the always same. me. Yeah. I'm always writing myself. I'm sure they're the same. <laughs> Who are we kidding? So let's Get into the mind of Jeff Graham. Speaking of lava. For I know. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of going through hellfire, um, but also, you know, creating such a beautiful, beautiful film. Um, so, Jeff, why did you decide you were going to write something with the intention of making it? How, how did this happen? Well, I... When I first moved to LA, I optioned a half hour that got made on a shoestring. Um, I co-wrote that pilot, and um, uh, it got made on very little money, but I was on set and it was a very interesting moment where I was watching my work get made and directed. And I had this very deep instinct, like, I don't know if I'm a director or if I feel like a director, but I've had many moments on set where I would have had a different instinct as to how these words should be performed by these actors and maybe even like what the camera could be doing during this. And I did not have the language or the 
articulation to be able to kind of recognize that, but there was something deep that was stirring as I watched someone else direct what I had written. Um, And I think the feeling was, I don't know if I'm the world's best director. I'm certainly not, but I kind of think maybe I would have been better for this than the person who's doing it. Um, So, and that's no, that's not anything negative against the director. It was just a kind of stirring and longing within me that kind of wondered what would this be like? And this is a very kind of practical bare bones answer, but my wife and I who produced the film with me started to put together the budget for like a really highly polished short, you know, that we could submit to festivals and possibly get attention for. And it's interesting once you start doing the math of, you know, a four day shoot for a big short and renting equipment and getting a crew and, you know, permitting locations and possibly licensing music, you realize it's already very, very expensive. So we kind of asked ourselves the question, like what, what would happen if we just explored the idea of this as a feature instead? You know, if we added one more week to our budget, because the nice thing about a feature is you can sell it. You know, there's a market for it, which isn't necessarily true of shorts. So then I... So smart. It's just, so smart. It's, it's a way to think about it. And there's a lot of producers who would disagree with me. Um, but there's a lot of producers increasingly who do agree with me, especially with digital filmmaking. You're not paying for film. So it's just the numbers are very different now than they were 20 years ago. Um, so I gave myself the challenge of, you know, if I were to try to write a feature and constrain locations and limit character and make it just a very personal movie, which you both saw, this movie's very personal for me. What, what could I do? Um, so that was kind of why I decided. And sorry, just to bring it all home, I was th- I thought for a long time, like, do I bring on a director? And I thought, if, if I'm giving myself the chance to learn how to write a micro-budget feature, you know, I might as well give myself the chance to either succeed or fail on set and then I won't have any regrets about doing it this way so yeah that was how I decided Love that I don't know if if this is true or not but someone once told me if you experience something and you think I could do that I can do that better then that's a thing you should pursue and I've I've sort of always trusted that uh, like I'll read a really great book I don't often think I could do better mm-hmm. I should not be a novelist, you know, but, you know, watching TV or a movie, I think, oh, I'd make different choices. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's the sort of thing that I've always uh, gravitated toward. I don't know if anyone has ever heard that. Like, does that ring true? Totally meaningful. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's like that instinct is your your artist's heart crying out like it wants to do it. To me, it's a want and a yearning and. Yeah, they would, you wouldn't be having that feeling if you didn't deeply want it. And that also matters a lot, too, I think. So yeah. Sometimes jealousy can be a good indicator of that mm-hmm. if you're just super jealous of that person. And maybe your Me? brain is... Never. Never. Maybe your brain isn't ready to admit that you want it or your brain is afraid yeah. of not knowing how to do it, which is my big thing. I'm a big kind of like, I need a teacher. I need to be mentored. I need somebody needs to explain to me exactly how to do this. Um, so it would never think I can do it better it's It's just not the way my brain works but if I'm jealous I'm like oh well it's under there somewhere (laughs) yeah it's so interesting my brain went I can do that better rather than I want to do that too I think that that feeling kind of but some kind of conditioning other than like I want to do that too rather I want to do that better like that's just just a nasty way to think about other people's work you know so I don't know I think that's taste though right like it's when you're watching something and you're bumping against something the most okay, generous look, you guys all I want to do today is beat myself up stop getting in my way so all anyway right, Jeff right. yeah. what are Jeff. some considerations so you said you set yourself the challenge of writing for a micro budget and then you decided to direct it so when you were approaching the page and right. you said construct strained locations and limited 
um, cast, but like, what was the reality of that? Like, what did you have to resist doing? What was hard about it? And what was joyful and great about it? I, it's a great question. And I think the first thing I did was I watched a bunch of micro budget features. You know, Meg talks about watch the best and worst of the thing you're trying to write. And I think increasingly you can think about these like thirty to $50,000 films as a, its own genre. And you'll start to see a lot of the similarities across them. So you can even look at old movies like The Big Chill or The Breakfast Club, which were big inspirations for me in this film. But Relative to other films in the 80s, those were low budget. You know, for a Lawrence Kasdan film, The Big Chill did not cost. Most of the budget of that movie went to music because it has one of the best soundtracks of all time. But um, you're starting to look at these movies that are typically a limited location, um, you know, a small cast, and they're really driven by ideas or some kind of profound emotional event that's going to push these characters to need to explore something they hadn't before. Um, I think it was so interesting to hear Meg put like character pulls as a language to what I tried to do with this movie specifically. And I guess for some context, just so everyone knows, the movie follows these five high school grads who are reuniting on their annual camping trip to mourn the loss of their best friend. But on this trip, secrets around her death, particularly that her family is hiding, come out and sort of threaten to destroy their friend group and their memory of their friend. And it was deeply personal. I lost my friend in high school, and this movie's really for her. The title character is inspired by her. So I think, like, Lorian smartly asked, like, what were some of the constraints you needed to consider? But I think instead, what really helped me was, like, what are some of the abundance mindset ways to approach this? Like, what fun could I have if I were limited to one location? Or like, with such a character forward movie, what are some of the exciting ways I can really explore them, you know, while, while not needing to feel the burden of huge set pieces or studio obligations? And so I think like shifting your mindset as you approach the page from like, what don't I have to like, what do I actually have? Like, what are the opportunities here? with such little money and time and space that I can explore that I will never get to explore again. You know, if I'm doing a traditional studio movie, you actually won't have those opportunities anymore. So I think that's helpful as you approach the page. Did you at some point though, now as the director, so that's the writer, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm assuming the director had to deal with, okay, I don't have money for this many locations and I've got to, did you have to cut scenes as the director? Did you have to go to your writer self and say, listen, I know this is tough, but we're going to have, we only have so many days. So we got to cut some scenes. Did you I've, did you have that? To I'm ha- sure that happened. It's so funny because because I knew I was directing it. I feel like it was very hard to separate those two things. Like I do think my director was on the page as I was writing too. I think the m- most important moment of the production, and this is I would highly advise anyone who wants to do this, is going to location scout earlier than you normally would in a production schedule. Um, we shot in Ohio and we wanted to shoot within like a two mile radius I shot the film in conjunction with my university, which is super helpful because a university has bars and libraries and offices and classrooms and eager students. So there is a way to like have access to a lot of different types of locations that are all really close to each other. Um, But after seeing locations and really having the geography of what our set would be, that was when I went back and rewrote. And I think, again, I went rather than thinking like, oh shit, the script is collapsing because these are the locations we're limited to. I instead thought like, what exciting things can I do now that I know what the locations are? What can I do instead? How can this feel like a gift or an opportunity rather than a hurdle that I need to overcome as I, as I rewrite? If that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. totally. So earlier you talked about character pulls mm-hmm. in your writing. How did you actually put that into action? 
when you were uh, writing and then again, reinforcing it visually as a director. And let's just so for people who don't know, and I should do a whole uh, workshop on this Mm -hmm. (laughs) on our, on our, on our Patreon. Um, So a character poll is often uh, having worked with a lot of actors it's where this idea came for me. It's where do, where does the character start and where do they finish? Which sounds so simple, right? But in those character polls is your whole movie, is your thematic, is your motive, is your want, is your entire engine, right? Um, so sometimes just putting those as stakes in the ground, like when I talked about iteration, sometimes that's how I'm iterating. Well, then where would she start and where would she finish if this was her antagonist or whatever? So that's what a character poll is. So Jeff, yeah. how did you do that? Well, I think when you're limited to locations, well, Meg and Lorian talk all the time. Character is structure, right? Like no matter how big your movie is, I think we all we go to see movies and TV to watch a character undergo a profound journey, you know. And and in its most simple form, I think we really love to see a character learn something deep or you know experience something emotional that's going to change them. And if you don't have access to you know big set pieces or amazing locations all you kind of have is that character's journey. Um, so I think like trying to dig into a heavy theme is helpful. I mean, you should always be doing that in your writing, but especially for a micro budget film, like this movie's heavily about grief and it's especially about grief as a young person. I always say, you know, young people have lost parents or grandparents and that's a very specific kind of grief, but I think everyone can identify the moment when they lost a peer for the first time. It's a different kind of grief. I think it confronts teenagers to kind of confront their own mortality, which is a different type of grief. So I knew that that was going to be thematically interesting to explore. And I knew that that's the kind of thing that could be explored through conversation and behavior. Um, And just quickly to talk about the characters a bit, the the main relationship is between the title character, Lola, who... Um, we lose very early in the film and her sister who was always kind of an outsider in this friend group. And um, you know, the sisters always deeply feared the, the tragic downfall, the sort of tragic fall of the title character who dies is sort of her recklessness and her overzealous approach to her own life, which ends up kind of ending it. So her sisters always had this deep, deep fear of that type of lifestyle because she saw it end her sister. But I knew that to tell a full story, she would need to embrace that element of her sister and kind of in a way become her to really move on and and live a more full life. So kind of planting those two stakes in the ground for that sister character gave me a a direction to at least try to write. Um, So starting with that, and Lauren, you mentioned visually, like, there are these moments in the film where each of them kind of have this like freak out moment where they're pacing back and forth and we shot it in close up. And I talked with my DP a lot about this, but like by filming it the same way for both of those characters, it, it gave context for those character pulls. Like we even tried to do it visually. Um, so that was the goal with that. I noticed with that character, the sister character, her costumes changed as she did. Um, can you talk a little bit about the decisions that went into costuming. Gosh, that is so interesting. This is where I would love to like have a beautiful and articulate answer. I think we may have gotten a little lucky with that. (laughs) Um, I think, I do think though, sometimes this stuff does show up subconsciously. Like if you're deep in your own creative work, like in your own writing, things will show up and. Yeah, of course it does. Of course it does. So that's, that's a beautiful compliment. Thanks, Lauren. I don't know if we were super, super aware of that, but um, I, it was so funny. Well, there's one scene where she visits one of the friends. She's the only one to visit that friend. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden she's wearing this floral dress with a very deep neck. Yeah, you're right. And I was like, wow. And she's super emotional and vulnerable. Like her heart is like right there. 
And then that's the only time she wears anything like that. And then the next time it's a, it's sort of in between that and where she was at the beginning of the film, costume wise and emotionally. I just found that so interesting that that was the choice for that moment it was so out of character for her. But the, but the exposure of the, what the decolletage yeah. was so extreme. And I was like, oh, this means something. And then it did. So yeah, anyway, right. it was nicely done, even though it was accidental. Well, I will say I, I did give our actors a lot of say in what they were wearing. And this has a lot to do. I'm really proud of the cast. I think they're great in the movie. And I think they're really, really smart actors. And I would say if you're going into your first feature and it doesn't cost much money, rather than casting, of course, you want to cast really great actors. But I would also prioritize casting really smart, like story driven actors. Um I'm sure that's a decision. Her name's Corinne, the actress who plays that character. She's a genius. So I'm sure she was thinking about it when she worked with me to make that choice. And that's not even something I necessarily need to know as the director. Um, it probably is. <laughs> the more I get experience as a director, I'll be more conscious of these departments. But um, well, I... when you actually have money and there's a wardrobe lady exactly. walking up saying, would she wear this or this? Because right. I think this, this and this. That's that's a whole conversation that happens when you have somebody that that's their whole job. That's right. That is true. Um, but I, I, and this is something I would really recommend. I, I included the actors in pre-production. You know, we were doing table reads early on. I don't love rehearsal because I like to kind of come to set and let the actors feel like they haven't emotionally exhausted the material to kind of see what shows up on set that day. But um, I had hour-long conversations with all of them about their characters. And of course, they wanted to ask me questions about my experience and how it informed some of the themes of the movie. And I also told the actors, like, I'm totally open to rewrite suggestions. Um, I reserve the right to not take any of your notes, but you can definitely bring them to me. And 95% of the suggestions my actors brought, I implemented because they're usually really smart. And actors will see your movie very differently than you do in a way that's really valuable. Well, they have to create authenticity. Right. So they need their director to hear what they need to create that authenticity. Not all directors do that, of course. I think those are something that... Now, how did you get your cast? Let's just talk about that from a practical... Where where did you get them? How did that come about? Yeah, this... I will say another thing I would recommend is writing for actors you know, if you do know actors. Um, so three of the actors in the movie I had cast before I even really jumped into the project... Um, so I was able to write for them, which is really helpful. Um, in fact, five of the six actors I knew and already had at least a somewhat professional relationship with from former projects. I will say, interestingly, the main kind of sister character we've been talking about was the only actress I didn't know. Um, I, I kind of found her through traditional methods. So I reached out to agencies and sent the script and said, you know, this is going to be a ULB day rate. It won't be much. Um, and I think that's another important thing with production is just making very clear to your cast and crew what kind of production you're putting up. You know, if, if people are used to big studio things, this is an indie. Um, we did, the benefit of shooting in a college town was we were able to rent like dorms and a college house, which actually was fine living for our cast and our actors and our crew. But being very transparent about that up top was super helpful. But yeah, I auditioned a bunch of actors um, for that one character and the thing that ended up working out in our favor is that she's the character who's kind of on the outside throughout the whole movie. And it was the one actress who didn't have a relationship with me or any of the rest of the cast. So she got close to us throughout the production, but inevitably like we'd be saying inside jokes and she'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's <laughs> Which, so good. <laughs> it really worked. I know it really worked for the movie. Um, now, so yeah. Can you talk about staging a table read for your university and uh, to create support? 
Yeah, this is super helpful. And I will say a big recommendation I would offer to our listeners is that colleges and universities can make a really great kind of nucleus for a production of this type. Um, there's a movie I like a lot called Shit House. Um, it's this director named Cooper Reif. Meg, I know you've seen his second movie, Cha Cha Real Smooth, with Dakota Johnson. He won the. I love that movie. Yeah, he's a really movie. enviably good filmmaker. I will say he'd be fun to have on the show. But he shot his first feature at a university as well. And the thing that's great, I mentioned it earlier, but it puts you in close proximity to a lot of locations. Um, and there's a educational support system on universities where like students may be eager to crew up, um, potentially working for rates that you might not be able to get for people with more experience because they're really eager to get on set and see how it looks and how it feels. Um, so that's the benefit of shooting in a university. And I actually taught a class in anticipation of the production on campus leading up to the shoot. My students are background actors in the movie, which ended up being really fun. Um, but basically I, I just, got on Zoom. I had had most of the cast already decided and, you know, got the provost of my school on and said, like, here's what we're doing and just did a Zoom table read. And it was the scary thing of putting yourself out there. But with Zoom, there's a lot that you can do to kind of create proof of concept or ideas when you're pitching. So that was super helpful and an important part of the of the process. Super smart is what it was. Well, it, it, it was necessary. We needed it. You know, it was, that's the other thing with these types of productions. And as a producer, you're just kind of like, what do I need to do? And there are certain things that you just run into and you're like, this, we can't go forward unless we do this. So this is what we'll do now. So basically you're also being the producer, uh, director and writer. Was there any moment that those came into conflict that the producer knows you need to do this, but the director and writer are like, we have to have this. Like, how, how did you handle those? Meaning how did you yeah. stay, how did you not let the producer drive uh, when sometimes, you know, the creative needs to drive? I, there was one specific moment, <laughs> this is a funny story, but there's a couple spicy scenes in the movie, nothing too bad, but I really wanted to close set um, because they were fairly intimate scenes. So I wanted as few people on set as we could so the actors felt safe. And that was the day my parents, we had like it had rained, so our schedule got pushed and my parents really wanted to come see set. And that was the day that there was an intimate scene happening and I was like, <laughs> of all of the people that I want to see me direct my first intimate scene, I promise you the bottom of the list is my mom and my dad. <laughs> this is this is the absolute bottom of the list. Um, so like, I just... So that's a scene from a movie yeah. somewhere. Right, yeah. absolutely. You know, like, I wish the documentary film crew was there. That yeah, day. exactly. And then of course my mom's like, your movie has inappropriate scenes? And I was like, no. <laughs> um, but I think like, there might have been an element of the producer being like, well, if you invited these folks to set, like you need to bring them to set. But then I think like the director and me knew like, no, this won't be good creatively if <laughs> my parents are on set for this. So that was an interesting moment. Um, you know, John Lee Hancock talked when he was on the show, blindside director about how sometimes even if the schedule's being pushed, if an actor needs to feel like they need to get a certain take, like giving them the space to do that. So there's a couple times when I just think like, even if I felt like we had it and we were ready to move on, I wanted the actors to feel like they were safe to do as much as they could. Um, so I think that's another great, and I'm stealing that from him. That he, that's a great episode to go listen to, but that would probably be the other one where I knew like, this is the correct directorial choice here to give the actors space. Okay, so I want to go back to uh, you as a writer and your lava and you mentioned this was a very personal story and i'm sorry for your loss around that that must have been really tough i'm glad you made a movie about it though Thanks, Lauren. um 
can you talk about your lava through the whole process though right yeah. as the writer director as the producer and meg was saying like getting in conversations with those different hats that you're wearing sort of how could you sustain it and protect it mm. and still have it still be crackling for you yeah the the strange thing about this movie was that like set was surprisingly smooth i think like that never happens with first features so i'm sure if and hopefully when i direct my second it's going to be a shit show like i'm just like buckling up for it but i think post was where a lot of lava showed up um there's an inevitable heartbreak when you wrap set and you get to post and you realize there were certain it's a very strange experience because certain things pop way more than you realize once you get to the edit and you're like, wow, that scene didn't feel quite as magical on set. And here it might be the best scene in the movie. And there are certain moments where either A, you didn't quite get it, so you know you might need to be flexible in set uh, in the edit, or B, you know something needs to change quite a bit in the edit. And that can kind of feel heartbreaking too. Um, it was my first time walking through a feature in post and I hadn't really learned that lesson yet that like you're really making three movies, you're writing one movie and that's its own piece of, that's its own piece of art and then you're shooting one and that's kind of its own piece of art and then you're really making a third movie in the edit. Um, so I think like I had to like kind of walk through a lot of heartbreak as I realized this movie might feel different in post than really what I imagined when I got to the page. And I'm, I made the mistake that I would probably advise against, which is I also cut the movie myself. Um, mostly that was budgetary. Like we just didn't have the money to pay an editor. Um, and I got lucky because a TSL listener with an insane amount of studio editing experience graciously lent me her time to mentor me through later cuts which is amazing and like such a gift that this podcast has given me. Um, and just to shout out our audience speaks to the kinds of listeners we have where this editor who's on the board of the ACE of the American society or whatever the ACE union is, she was just like, yeah, the podcast has given me a lot. So I'm happy to just like walk you through this. Um, I do think it's a good instinct if you have the money though, to have your own editor, yeah. to have a separate editor because they can give you perspective in a way that you just can't get yourself. You know, they're, they are, you know, what did you find in terms of the editing as a storyteller that you learned that now you can take back to your writing? I learned so much sitting in edit rooms, just so, so much. It's such a good question. Um, I mean, we talk a lot about on the show, as much as dialogue is probably the thing I love most about writing, typically the most interesting things you can capture as a writer and director are behavior and like what your characters are doing rather than saying. So I lost a ton of dialogue in the edit. And part of that too is, Sometimes you need that dialogue in, on the page and then you get actors who are so fucking brilliant that they're just showing you what you wrote pages about in their eyes or their face. Or So I think like the behavioral and kind of cinematic aspects of, of what actors are doing or characters are doing is going to serve you as a storyteller better than dialogue typically, um, especially in this type of movie, which is sort of like an emotionally driven drama. So I think losing dialogue was a, probably the biggest thing I learned in the edit. And then crewing up, um, you know, I was talking to my son about from my experience as a producer and, you know, I was a producer, but certainly there's bigger ones, but it, I did do a super low budget one, not super low, but it was a low budget one. And um, it was, <laughs> we were like experienced DP mm -hmm. because it's a first time director, an accountant. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm, I know if it's like $10,000, you're not going to do this, but like the accountant is super important, you know? 
and um, sound. Mm -hmm. Like I had never really thought about how essential good sound is for any movie that if you have bad sound, it really, no matter how much beautiful it looks, it's going to feel cheap, right? 100%. How did you, how did you prioritize crewing up? Where did you find your crew? Like what was your process with that? Well, you're 100% right that sound actually matters more than picture. I know we think about movies as a visual medium, and of course they are, but, you know, we watch Charlie Chaplin movies, which are, of course, gorgeous in their own right, but they're, you know, grainy black and white films. <laughs> Those are silent movies. This is the worst analogy I could have made. I was going to say, but they sound great. There's no sound <laughs> in a Charlie Chaplin movie. Um, but sound design matters as much, if not more, than picture, because people will patiently sit through a movie that doesn't look great if it sounds okay, but they'll never sit through a movie that sounds bad. So your analogy stands. Silent movies were not meant to be sat there silently watching them. They have live piano players right. there. The sound told us the story, mm -hmm. right? And when you watch a Charlie Chaplin movie, they have put sound to it to yeah. tell us the story, to reinforce the emotional story of it. So it stands. You're right. You're right. Um, so yeah, sound is what we sprung the most for, and we found a great sound team. Um, this was a super, this is what I'd advise if you can. We had a female sound mixer and engineer on set. She was lead sound, which was great because a lot of what sound is during the beginning of the day is lobbing actors. And it saved us a lot of potential awkwardness by just having a female being able to lob our there's something inevitably uncomfortable when a male actor has to come in and love female actresses he doesn't know. So I, I hope I get to work with Carrie Stevens on every production I ever do. She's a brilliant sound engineer he, and huge attention to detail. Um, and then my DP I've worked with for like 10 years and I'm lucky because he shot that first pilot I mentioned at the very beginning of our, of our show. And with all of our crew, I will say, I try to get them involved early so they could feel creatively invested in the project because one of the deeply challenging things about a micro-budget feature is just because of the nature of what it is, you know that you're not going to be able to pay your cast and crew enough. There's just never enough money, and that's true with any movie, but especially with, with what our budget was. So getting them on early and getting them creatively invested in the project, and with AJ specifically, who was my DP and also a brilliant mind when it comes to Grip and Electric, I just insisted on giving him points in the movie. So like this MG we just got, like part of that goes to him because I knew I wouldn't be able to give him enough up top. So I was just like, AJ, I only feel morally conscious giving, like bringing you onto this if, if we're going to share in the profit. So that's another really valuable way to inspire crew to get involved when you just don't have enough money. What about the festival circuit? Can you talk about that and what that was like? Yeah. And um, there's, there's a lot of approaches to festivals. And I will say like for our listeners, some might agree or disagree with what I'm saying, but um, festivals are strange because there are the big five festivals, at least in North America, which are Tribeca, Toronto, Sundance, South by, and Telluride would be like the five film festivals where sales will actually happen at festivals. So those are considered like markets as much as they're considered festivals. So we held out to and those festivals will typically only program you if you're premiering at them because they want to have the exclusive rights to show your movie. Um, we applied to some of these big ones and didn't get in, which then unlocked space to look at like the second tier festivals, which would be like festivals like the Heartland Film Festival or Austin. And I'm not saying second tier in a negative way. These are amazing festivals. They're just typically not covered in the trades and typically like acquisitions and sales aren't happening at these festivals. Um, so we were lucky to get into a great LA-based film festival, the Marina Del Rey Film Festival. And 
we talked about, like, is this really how we want to, you know, premiere the movie? Do we want to try to hold out and maybe go for something regional? Um, but the nice thing about premiering locally was that we were able to pack the house because a lot of our team is based in LA. So there was something really valuable about that. And it gave us more space to kind of stand out among the competition. So we ended up winning our premiere festival. So sometimes if you're a really, really small film playing a Sundance, you kind of get buried by these movies that are starring A-list actors and directed by, you know, like there are A-list directors who are sending their movies to Sundance now, which is great. But if it doesn't necessarily feel like it's as conducive towards independent filmmaking if these budgets are four to five million dollars, it's a different kind of independent filmmaking. So playing a, you know, a tier two regional festival might be a better home for your movie and actually give you more momentum when it comes to pitching to distributors. So it's going to be up to each team, but don't, don't hesitate to show your movie at like a festival that might not feel as big if it's going to give you leverage or ammunition when it comes to actually selling it, if that makes sense. Well, let's That's talk about, se- yeah, let's talk about selling it in distribution. What's that like? Well, we got lucky because... Um, there actually was a sales agent at the festival that we had played. Um, and because we ended up winning, he was interested in the movie. Um, cause he kind of keeps tabs on like local festivals. And I will say there's a, a number of ways to distribute an independently made feature. One of them is self-distribution, which is totally a great option for some people. Um, some people say it's the best option because then you get to keep all of your profits. Um, I, you know, when you sell to a distributor, there's an inevitable profit sharing split. Um, and if you have a good agent, they can negotiate a good rate. But um, we ended up going with a sales agent who basically pitched our movie to all of the specific production companies that he knew were interested in this type of movie. And um, he ended up finding us a good deal. I think I'm glad we got a couple deals early that didn't seem great. And I'm glad we waited because we ended up getting a third deal that was the best fit for us. But I'll just go ahead and give his name because he's sort of the guy when it comes to this type of movie. He's like, you know, thirty to $50,000 films. His name's Glenn Reynolds. He's with Circus Road Films. And he'll pretty much, hopefully, I'll need to check if he's okay with me sharing this. But if you connect with him and pitch your movie, he'll pretty much watch anything. He won't necessarily take you on. But um, he, he really knows the industry and he was able to broker a good deal for us. So that was the right way to go. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. I have a question for you. Let's say when you were writing this movie, TSL was on. What advice do you wish you'd heard on this podcast <laughs> that would have maybe helped you in some way? That's so smart. Or I'll rephrase it. What advice do you wish you'd gotten when you started this project? I think that's a brilliant question. Hmm. I think I think I feel really strongly that there are probably a lot of writers listening who would love to try to direct, but they've been kind of told by the Hollywood industrial complex that they're not special enough to direct because they're just writers who should sit in the corner and give their script to someone who actually has the skills or the talent to know what to do with the camera. And I, I really hate that because all of my favorite filmmakers are writer-directors. You know, I love Alexander Payne and Tamara Jenkins and Kelly Reichardt and all of these filmmakers who direct their own writing. And I don't think every script should be directed by the person that wrote it. Um, but I think when it comes to a, a small, personal, character-driven story, 
often the best person to direct that is the person that wrote it because they can bring so much emotional context to set. Um, and of course, this only has to do with if someone really has that longing or that urge to direct. But if there are listeners who feel like, I don't know what the fuck a lens is, I don't know what a camera is, like, I didn't either, so I found a great DP and really leaned on him. Um, so if you have that longing and there's something stirring that you're curious if you would make a good director, giving yourself the opportunity to do it, I think is a really good idea because then at least you'll live without regret. You know, you'll know I don't like this and you can just focus on writing or the scarier one, which is you find out you do love it. And now you have this complicated new <laughs> longing <laughs> in your own career. <laughs> but that's what I wish. I wish someone would have given me permission to direct younger because I think I would have tried to get on set sooner. So Jeff, um, what is your favorite scene in your movie? Um, so there's a very quiet scene. Like I, I mentioned it already. You find out early that the title character dies and throughout the film, the characters are trying to kind of untangle whether or not they were complicit with what happened. And when they learn the truth of what happened, a lot of things become even more complicated given their context with their friend. But there's one character in particular, his name is Trey in the movie. He's Lola's oldest friend there's kind of this funny coming out of the closet scene that the two of them share early in the film, but he has to kind of come to grips with the fact that he felt like he was best friends with this person, but she hid a lot of the emotionally complicated turmoil that she was going through as she was leading up to her, her loss. And he, he feels very guilty and complicit in what happened because he thinks like, if only she had opened up to me, if only I had been a better friend to her, uh, maybe I could have like, you know, saved your life. And, uh, oh shit, here I go. I'm so sorry. Um, don't be sorry. Don't be I, sorry. I, I felt that way with my friend, you know, when I found out the news of what happened, I, I felt like, why didn't I know more? And I was learning that a lot of my friends did know more than I did. And I, I, I think it's taken me years in therapy to learn that like, hopefully the, like the, the friendship that we had so young gave her like a space or like a, uh, a space that she could feel safe with me to not have to like access the challenges of adulthood with me. Um, like we had like kind of a playful, innocent friendship that I would hope maybe in those moments where we were together, she could kind of like escape or like feel like she was safe from the challenges of being a grown up. And there's one scene, there's a, there's this workout scene and there's a follow-up conversation that we shot in one take with, it's like a one shot. And the, one of the characters tells this character that exact thing that took me like years to learn in therapy. And I think like if someone had told me that years ago, I could have healed sooner. <laughs> so I think creating the scene has given me space to sort of heal that wound and putting it up on its feet. I'm like, maybe someone else can hear this message and be told what I wish I would have been told when I found out she died. So that's, that's helpful. That's so incredibly beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. And it also so beautifully illuminates that sometimes just asking yourself or if you're working with somebody else, what's your favorite scene? Usually the lava is sitting mm -hmm. right in there somewhere, you know, and uh, thank you for being vulnerable with us. I think that's a great gift to our audience. So thank oh, you. Welcome to the club, Jeff. Yeah, welcome I know. yeah we've all and done it. As, and as someone who was lucky enough to see it premiered um, with a packed house, I can say like, oh my God, it's so funny too. Oh, thanks, you know, Anna. like um, I just, I just really feel like the writing is, I mean, the jokes, it just all kind of, it played so well to. to that was a good house. house. So congrats you were, on that. You yeah. were in a good room. It played really well that night. Um, but yeah, I think 
that's the last thing I would say is just like, if you're trying to be as honest as you can on the page, like funny shit will show up, right? Like, especially writing about grief, like I've, we've all been to a funeral where you cry first and you laugh later. And like, that's kind of what I was at least trying to do in the movie. And part of it, that character specifically, Trey, I do want to shout out the actor, Colin Campana. He just booked a big thing on a Ryan Murphy show, but he is just so naturally funny. Yeah. I really liked the movie. I thought it was funny. I thought it was beautiful. I felt emotional and um, it really felt like a story. And I, there was a lot of really unexpected things knowing you that I was like, Okay, right? Like I just didn't I couldn't have predicted that you would have been writing about some of these things and I I felt really like I knew you better. Oh, thanks, having Lauren. watched your movie, I felt closer to you and more connected. Oh. And I also because you've admitted on the show that you like watch you were watching the analytics of people <laughs> watching a movie, so I was like, "Oh, he saw that I paused in minute 20, but I was like, I just had to talk to my husband for just a second." You know, so um I also felt like you were there with me while I was watching the movie. Yeah, Not over like your shoulder. Stalker. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I really I mean, thank you for making this movie and um I hope everyone uh checks it out. Thanks, uh, what will you tell us what the budget was? I'm happy to. Yeah. Okay. Um we spent about I think like $22,000 on production alone. Um, And part of the reason I want to bring that up is because that unlocks this SAG, this new SAG signatory contract, which is the micro low budget contract, um, which the only thing that can get complicated, and I'm just going to get into the weeds because I do think it's super helpful. It gives you space to contract SAG actors for a highly reduced rate. And then if you end up selling the movie and it becomes a commercial project, you can then retroactively pay them their SAG ULB rate. So that like $25,000 magic number is super helpful to get great actors on your set if you're creating something really small. And then you can always sell it and readjust later. Um, So in in terms of post-production costs, editing, color and sound, and then like insurance, we're probably going to land somewhere right around $40,000 for the whole thing. So that's um, amazing. That's amazing. And I do want to say, talking about the weeds and and uh, and your knowledge and what you've learned the hard way sometimes, mm-hmm. that you do have a workshop that you're going to teach to try to spread out this knowledge and give back. And uh, you can find it on on your website, right? People can go there. Yeah, thanks so much for the shout out, Meg. I've had some TSLers take it and they seem to really like the class. But if you want to check out the class, you can go to jeffgramdigital.com slash class. And I'll link that in the description below. Um, but it's a five-part class. And we get into, of course, like considerations for writing and location scouting, but also really specific things like that signatory deal I mentioned. And the other thing I'll do is at the end of the class, I've neutralized all of the agreements and contracts that we use to crew up and you know independently contract our cast and I'll provide you like hundreds of pages of neutralized contracts and documents um, that I really wish I would have had before we went into the the production so um that's, that's a nice... amazing I'm suddenly like maybe I'm taking this <laughs> I think it's a good deal <laughs> okay I'm very excited to do this uh part of the show the, the three big questions so Jeff what brings you the most joy in your creative life hmm it's funny of all the hats that I like wore for this, which was a ton. I still do. I love writing. I love, love, love writing. And I think there is something magic though, when you get to pull other people into the the pot and the, the thing I would love people to leave with when they see the movie, 
that they kind of admire most is hopefully what I wrote. I, so that says a lot about like how I identify, but there's something so fun about collaborating and the, <laughs> my cast joke, they called me the crying director. Cause I just like wept the whole time. Like <laughs> I think they pretty much said like, if I didn't cry on a take, they were worried that like they didn't get it and they'd have to go again. <laughs> oh, until I, cried, I love so much lava. It's so much lava. And there's something, there's something wonderful about seeing something that you wrote and bled on the page for years. All of a sudden, these brilliant, smart people are doing it in front of you. You're watching a monitor and seeing people bring it to life. And it was hard. I just got emotional often. So I think inviting really, really smart people to help something you wrote become an even better version of what it was before is so magic. It's just magical. All right. Second question. What pisses you off about writing or your creative life? There, I've heard other directors mention this, but there are sometimes moments when you have something very specific on the page that is it's hard to communicate and you just want to put it up on its feet to show the person what you're trying to do rather than try to explain it. And there's a kind of a spicy scene early in the movie, I alluded to it, where a character kind of has this intimate, kind of funny, sad coming out moment with his best friend and it's kind of a weird scene and the dialogue's a little weird and it's an awkward scene. And I was kind of trying to create like the the John Hughes coming of age moment, but like in the context of a deep friendship rather than a romance. Um, and no one got it on the page and everyone wanted me to cut it. And I just really pushed to keep it. <laughs> and I'm glad I did because I, I really like that scene. Um, and I think sometimes in pre-production, trying to explain and push for the importance of that scene without quite having the words to do it which could piss me off sometimes just because it was really hard. Savannah, you're up. Ask him the third question. Jeff, if you could travel back in time and get a coffee with yourself, uh, what would you say to yourself? I think I would say do it earlier, you know, and even for no budget, right? I, everyone has phones. Everyone has, you can really go out there and make like a $0 short with your buddies. Um, and it's very easy to do that now. You know, there's no, there's no barrier to entry. And I think like that experience and specifically failing is going to help you learn so fast if you have the urge to direct. So there's a million. I think it's just very easy when you look at a production and you approach it. All the no's start coming really, really fast. It's can we're the same way with the blank page or our ideas, but um, there's a bunch of amazing yeses that are buried beneath those no's that you'll never hear if you don't just fucking do it. So just do it. I think that would be what I would tell that Jeff. I'm inspired. Oh, yeah, good. love it. Good. Well, I, I will it. say if I could quickly say so much. I. It later passes of this script were so deeply informed by what I've learned from both of you. And this is when you get to not feel imposter syndrome. I, I really deeply mean it. You both saw the movie. I, it's so vulnerable. It, it is just like a piercing yeah. look at my, my paint. And like, I feel like you all gave me the gift of like knowing that that was okay. And that was the right thing to do. And Lorraine, so much of advice you've given about dialogue and how it shows characters, your character workshop. Some of that showed up in the movie. Meg, what you've taught about character pulls and emotional journeys, that's in the movie. So I'm deeply indebted to both of you. And thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I would, thank you. Yeah. And thank you yeah. for doing the movie. I mean, we're all yeah. just so lucky um, to have experienced it. So thank you, Jeff. Well, you can pre-order it now. I'm going to shamelessly That's plug right. it. That's right. Here we go. Yeah, I'll link it in the description as well. But I will say, it's like it's been like three bucks to rent. I think like 10 bucks if you want to buy it. So Yeah, come on. Take your latte money. Yeah, three bucks. 
Maybe Three four. Bucks. I'll Steph, edit it. Where is it, it is. available? Where can you pre-order it? Yeah, it'll be so on all the like rent platforms. So like Amazon, Google Play, iTunes, anywhere where you can rent movies. So if you just Apple? go to your TV, Apple. Apple? Yep, it'll be on Apple TV. So if you just like search the movie, you should find it. Um, hopefully, as long as our distributor <laughs> does everything they need to. <laughs> they, yeah. will. they will. They will. They will. Yeah. So yeah, just search the movie on your TV or computer and you'll find it. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. This was so fun. Uh, as a writer, produ- as a writer, director, producer, all around amazing storyteller. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was great to uh, dive in there, dive into your brain, dive into your artistic self. So thank you. Thanks. And thanks uh, to you all for tuning in. And uh, don't forget, we've got a Patreon site for you to go over and get more one-on-one help uh, from Lorraine and I. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing. Thanks again so much for listening. Um, For those who are interested in checking out the movie, it is available in all English-speaking territories right now. So US, Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. And it's living on different platforms in some of those territories, but all that information will be included below. Uh, Check out the movie. I would love for you all to see it. I'm proud of it. And you can even connect with me and we can talk about it if you respond to it. If you're not in an English-speaking territory and you really want to check the movie out, um, Google it because it might be there, my distributor tells me. (laughs) Um, But if you can't find it, email press at alwayslolafilm.com and mention where you are. And that's good ammunition for my distributor to get it up on those platforms. Finally, I know Megan Laurie mentioned that class. I would love to meet you all over there. Um, I'm launching a new round of classes next year in mid-January. Um, it's a great, you know, new year, new you chance for you to start off your new year with some momentum. It's great for people who are looking to put up shorts as well. So again, you can check that out in the website below. That's jeffgrahamdigital.com slash class. It's an easy sign up. And if you use the promo code TSL at checkout, you'll actually get a 10% discount on the class. So thanks so much for listening. And um, I hope to see you all in the class in the new year.